number one, Philippians in chapter number one this morning. It is good to see everyone here today, and uh, we just want to let you know that from our church, we're uh, aware of you know what's going on in the, the world and the health sector and all of those things, and we're trying to do our best to keep everything clean and sanitized and do everything that we can do. You will not offend us at all if you reject a normal hug with an elbow or a pound, okay? So you're not going to bother anyone, but we just want to let you know that you know, we are doing our very best to make sure this is a, uh, everything is clean and disinfected and all those kinds of things. But as Christians, we also need to understand that we're not called to have the spirit of fear, right? But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. So I'm not saying be stupid and go look at the concrete outside, okay? But at the same time, uh, you know, we're, we're going to continue to live as the Christ has asked us to live. And uh, one of those things is gathering together as in the Lord's house. Uh, so uh, usually in those, th- those situations, the best answer is balance. It's not, we don't go anywhere with anyone, and it's also not, we're not idiots either, okay? So somewhere bound, land somewhere in the middle, that's usually a good place to be, but uh, we are doing our very best to make sure that the church is a place that is, is safe and is uh, clean and all of those kinds of things as we're going into this season as well. But Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read uh, just four verses from verse 27 down to verse number 30. Verse 27 on to verse 30, that'll catch you up a little bit on where we've been over the past few weeks in the book of Philippians. This is kind of Paul's opening monologue to the church at Philippi. Largely, the first 26 verses have been about Paul. They've been about what he's going through. They've been about what, how he's approaching the difficult situation that he's in. You ask, what's the difficult situation he's in? Well, he's in prison, okay? He is chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. He is um, obviously not in the the best of circumstances, yet he's choosing to rejoice in them. He's got his pastor friends that should be celebrating him and praying for him and encouraging him while they're slandering him and mocking him and and criticizing him. All of these things are taking place. They're threatening to kill him, right? They're threatening to keep him alive, and he's rejoicing at every turn for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's just this incredible testimony of, of unyielding, tenacious joy, right? Now he's gonna shift his attention from what's going on with him, and he's going to begin to address the church at Philippi. You say, well, this has been all a letter to the church at Philippi, but yeah, we we haven't really talked anything about them yet, right? We've been talking largely about Paul. We haven't learned much about the Philippians' challenges. The church at Philippi was going under, uh, was underneath some intense persecution themselves. Many of them were losing their careers, their jobs. Many of them were being arrested and put into prison for their faith, so they were going through persecution as well. And now Paul is going to shift his attention towards addressing what they're going through. Let's, let's look at verse number 27, okay? Verse 27, Paul writes, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. And nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which ye have seen in me, and now here to be in me. I don't know how many of you like receiving gifts. My kids love gifts okay they see the ups guy pull up in the driveway and they just assume 
this is for me, and it's from Grandma, right? This, this is, if there's an Amazon logo on that box, this is mine. And then we opened up yesterday, and guess what it was? It was new pins for the church, right? And they went, oh, oh. Gifts are, are awesome until it's not something that you wanted, right? Look at verse number 29. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ. What, what do I get, right? What am I going to open up? Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Close the box back up, right? Give it back to the UPS guy. That's not, that's, that's not what I wanted. That's not a gift any of us hopes to open. But hopefully, by the end of our time together, we can see how we're able to approach suffering, how we're able to approach persecution with a spirit of joy like Paul does. I don't know if you remember, maybe when you were a kid, or maybe you are a kid, right, and mom and dad leave, and they leave you with a babysitter. Um, my parents didn't do that very often, not because they didn't value their marriage. They didn't trust me, and it's not they didn't trust the babysitters. I was that kid, okay? I was just, they, they knew if no 14-year-old is going to be able to handle all of this, right? So they didn't do it much, but uh, I can remember when the teachers would leave the room, and the teacher's aide would come in, and my friends and I would just have that smirk, because we knew it's go time, Right? Like the one who's in charge, the teacher that has established this, this dominance, this authority, she's leaving and she's bringing in this poor other person, right? And they'd have no idea what's coming for them. What we, we, we look to torture them. Those are glorious experiences, right? What can we do to make this person, what can we do to make this babysitter, what can we do to make this, this substitute teacher you know, miserable? We think as many things. No, we're not learning that. No, that's the wrong book, ma'am, right? And you think that, I can't believe you would do a thing like that. And I'm just really thankful you didn't know me at seven years old. It wasn't a pretty sight. Um, but, you know, try and, try and make them as miserable as you could. I can remember times in high school um, when the teacher didn't even come to the classroom. Like, and those were just awesome days, right? Like, well, we're in fifth period, and the teacher never even shows up. What an opportunity to waste time and to act irresponsibly and to do whatever we wanted to do, right? Because there's, there's no authority here. Mom and dad's not here and the teacher's not here. And well, now we can do whatever we want, right? Now I can, I can act however I want to act. We can do paper football or we can play whatever games we wanted to play in the classroom. Why? Because there's no authority there. They're gone, so it doesn't matter what I do. Paul had a little bit of that teacher-parent apprehension here, basically saying, I'm, I'm not there with you, and this is what I want to hear that you're doing, right? There's multiple times where I drop Graham off at school, and I say, I'm going to ask your teacher, his teacher's name is Mrs. Colby, I'm going to ask Mrs. Colby when I get back how you did today. Every day, how did Graham do? Some days, we don't have very many like really good days. We have more like it was fine today, or he tried to kiss this girl, and it didn't go exceedingly well. So those are the kind of days we usually have. You know? But I, I want to hear right? What I want to hear from your teacher is that, yes, Graham obeyed, and yes, Graham sat still, and yes, Graham did that. I want to hear of what you did while I was gone. And there's this weird feeling for me as a parent, the first, like, week we dropped him off at school, where, like, he has friends that we don't know, and he has conversations. Like, he'll come home, and he'll talk about some kid's name, and I have no idea who this child is. And for the first time, like, there's something about my kid that I don't know. He's doing things that I'm not witnessing, and that's a weird feeling for a parent. Some of you guys are laughing because your kids live in other states or whatever, but like, that was weird. Like, he's having experiences that I'm no longer a part of, and I, I want to hear that they're going well. Paul is addressing the church of Philippi and says, I want, this is, these are the things that I want to hear 
are happening in your church. These are the things that I want to hear are taking place. He adds it right in the middle of verse 27. He says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Whether I make it there or I don't make it there, this is what I want to hear is taking place in the church. This is what I want to hear is the truth about you. What he lays out in verse 27, really all the way down to chapter 2, verse 18, is going to kind of give an example of what he hopes is taking place in this church body. I'm not there, okay? I'm not witnessing day by day what's taking place, but this is what I hope is true about this church. He's going to talk about their unity, how they're getting along with each other. He's going to talk about their lifestyle, how they're behaving, okay, what they're doing, what they're speaking about. He's going to talk about their gospel-mindedness, okay? And it's going to take up a big portion of this Philippian letter just addressing this is what I hope is taking place. This is how I hope that you are behaving. It really is all summarized, those 25 verses in the first phrasing of verse number 27. Look at that first little phrase he says. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. What we're going to talk about this morning is a gospel focus, a gospel focus and what that produces in the life of an individual Christian and what it produces in a church that is focused primarily on the gospel. Number one, number one, a gospel focus produces consistency. A gospel focus produces consistency consistency. I had a friend of mine that I went to college with that he went to one year at the college that I went through, and then he went to become a Navy SEAL, okay? Like a legit Navy SEAL. And I don't know if you ever met a guy that you just meet him and you think, there's just something, one screw is a little loose, right, where that guy would make a pretty good Navy SEAL. Okay, that was just this guy. He was a friend of mine, but he was just a little bit nutty. And what he does now, it just makes perfect sense, right? Like that he went through all the training, all these different things, and uh, I was speaking to him at a wedding at this point, four or five years ago, and it's kind of talking through what his life is like compared to mine. And I don't know if you knew this, but it's, it's very different being a Navy SEAL than being a pastor of a church. Those are very different worlds. Um, but it was just interesting kind of hearing what he's talking about, what he's doing. Um, and uh, over the course of the conversation, you know, I just was kind of questioning, like, how does your mind work? Like, how, how do you go and do these things or go on these trips or these things and then come home and like, how does your mind work? And he, he recommended a book to me, um, and it was a book about the Spartans. I don't know if you guys like your history or not. I'm a big history dork, but the Spartans were just about the most terrifying army, uh, really, in, in much of human history. They were uh, driven. They were, a lot of things weren't very positive about them. If you read them, there's a lot of things that we wouldn't want to emulate. But he talked about, in that book, the warrior's mindset. That, that, that way your brain works when you are a warrior, when you are a soldier, and it, it really falls into two things. It falls into focus and unity. They said the Spartans, okay, they, these, these hardened warriors, they had a united focus and they stuck together. And you watched as they literally took over the world with those two things. Are you focused on the right thing and then are you doing it together? So let's start first with focus. Paul says, church at Philippi, I want your focus to be on the gospel of Christ. Verse 27 says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now, conversation we use as communication. When I say, how is your conversation? We're usually thinking, well, how is that talking with that person? Or how is that text communication? We, we connect conversation to communication. But conversation in this context 
did not mean talking. It didn't mean what you say or what you write or what you Facebook, okay? It meant your manner of life. It meant your conduct. It meant your lifestyle. So he says, only let your lifestyle, only let your behavior, only let your manner of life be as is becoming to the gospel of Christ. Now, becometh isn't a word we use too often in our modern language. What does becometh mean? It basically means worthy of. Only let your lifestyle be as is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What is he saying? He said, basically, live your life in such a way that it is worthy of the gospel of Christ. One author asked the question this way, is what you're living for worth him dying for? That's what he says, only let your conversation be as is becoming to the gospel of Christ. Now, the phrase here for let your conversation is interesting. It has political connotations. Um, okay, it's background on the, on the city of Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony, but it is nowhere near Rome. Like, literally, it's hundreds of miles away from Rome. So you ask, well, how does a city 100 miles away from Rome get to be a Roman colony? Actually, it's a pretty cool story. So the Roman uh, government and these soldiers came together, and they began to basically rid out these other regions, one of them being in this area of Philippi. Philippi was actually a gift given to non-Roman soldiers who fought on behalf of the Roman government, and they gave them this city. They gave them the position of Roman citizenship, and it became kind of their identity a little bit. Like, everyone else around them wasn't Roman, but the Philippians were Romans, right? I don't know if you ever had a conversation with someone who has that kind of identity and something that they're kind of proud of. Like, maybe you met a guy like, oh, do you play football? And he was standing like this, but then he also starts standing like this. The traps start flexing. Yeah, I play a little JV, right? They got that identity in them. Or like, oh, do you like, are you like, uh, where I grew up, there'd be like, uh, like the cowboy kind of guys, like the big belt buckle, boots for no reason kind of guy. Oh, you a cowboy? Oh, driving up some cattle up to Cheyenne this afternoon. Like, they just got that identity about them. Like, there's, they stick their chest out. Once you, once you hit what they're big in, that's who I am, right? Oh, you're an engineer, and they get their pocket protector out. I'm just kidding. But, you know, we've got all this. We've, we can stake our identity in it. Sometimes for us, it's American, right? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an American, right? We have this pride. We have this, I'm going to act in such a way as becoming to my identity. I'm going to act like a football player. I'm going to act like a, a cowboy. I'm going to act like an engineer. I'm going to act like... In American, we have this identity that we want to behave in such a way as becoming to that identity. He is saying, only let your conversation, like, hey, be, act like a Philippian, right? But he doesn't say act like a Philippian. He says act like a Christian. Have that pride. Have that identity. Have that, that you know, the chest sticking out, right? The boots on, the belt buckle. But it's not about anything else but what's becoming of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes people ask us if we're a Christian, it's the opposite of the pride. It's the, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not like the weird one, right? Like, I'm not like those crazy ones over there. Like, I, I, I believe a little bit over, like, we, we try to start backing up. No, he says, let your lifestyle, let your conversation be becoming to the gospel of Christ. Act like the citizenship of, act like you have the citizenship, say that word five times, citizenship, right, of heaven that you possess, right? Live out that reality, Notice he's not saying, only let your conversation be as becometh the church. Only let your conversation be as becometh conservatism. Only let your conversation be as it becometh tradition. 
He says, only let your conversation be as become of the gospel. How we act is not determined by what tradition is. How we act is not based on what is conservative politically or liberal politically. The filter for how we are to act is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we gauge what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. The Philippians had this granted citizenship of Rome. They had a ton of benefits. One of the best benefits, which us in Connecticut would get, never had to pay a dime of taxes. Never, glory. Like, let's move to Philippi. Let's all load up. Right? Never had to pay a dime of taxes. It was like the small-scale version of Rome that they were proud of. They're citizens of this colony. They're citizens of Philippi. They have this bond together. The good of the city was what they cared about. The good of their state that was in the minds of these people. They had this interdependence upon one another that they cared about each other. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to say. Have that pride like you have for Philippi. Have that pride to live as a citizen of heaven, to be a good citizen. How do we know this is true? Well, Paul goes on to say that we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's dear son. That, that is our citizenship. I am a citizen, yes, of Connecticut, yes, of America, but ultimately my citizenship is also in heaven, right? I, I am a citizen of, of God's kingdom. We have been made citizens of a new community, a new spiritual fellowship. So he says, basically, live like it. Live like it. Am I taking my cues from the gospel of Jesus Christ, or am I taking my cues of how I should live from secular culture? Or even for Christians, am I taking my cues over how I should live from the traditions of the church or the traditions of my own desires or the traditions of my own lust? We can go on either extreme. He says, let your filter of your behavior, what you do or don't do, be the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you focus on the gospel, your behavior will become consistent. And you won't be so hypocritical that we're guilty of at times. There's, there's situations as uh, you know, parents face sometimes, maybe your kids are teenagers, and they start asking the whys of life. Like, well, why can't I watch this? And why can't I go there? And why can't I wear this, right? Why, why? right? And you start thinking to yourself, I don't, because I said so, right? Like, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that right now. I understand, like, the why for us should be largely that's not becoming of the gospel of Christ. That's not worth Christ dying for, for us to be watching this, for us to be listening to this, for us to wear this, for me to say this, right, for me to post this online. Is it becoming to the gospel of Christ? Does it well represent the Christ that I follow? That's a much higher standard than how conservative you are. That's a much higher standard than, you know, how traditional you are. Let your conduct, your way of life, what you're doing be becoming of the gospel. We are to conduct ourselves in a worthy way. A worthy way. Whatever happens, our response is, should, is the way that I'm responding worthy of the gospel. You say, Andrew, this sounds a lot like works, right? Aren't we supposed to reject works? Well, let me ask you this. Is the Christian life about being or doing? It's a trick question. It's about both. It's about both. Just one informs the other. You make your Christian life only about doing without being, and you're going to be a miserable hamster on a hamster wheel. You make your Christian life about being, but understand that being will overflow in some doing. 
that being will overflow into your works. The church cannot live beneath its theology. If this is what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ, if this is what we believe about righteousness and holiness, and this is what we believe about our, our you know, repentance that brings forth our reconciliation with God, we cannot live beneath that. We ought to be living as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back this afternoon, and that is our focus, that is our drive, that is our attention. Your citizenship is in heaven if you're a follower of Christ. Live that out. Let your conversation, let your lifestyle be becoming of the gospel. Let me ask you this, okay? When you say something, when you do something, for us in the 21st century, when you post something, okay? Ask yourself at that moment, is this action, is this lifestyle, is this behavior worthy or becoming of the gospel of Christ? Is what I'm living for worth him dying for? In the late second century, there was a Christian philosopher named Athenagoras. And Athenagoras was pleading with the Roman emperor, at this point it was Marcus Aurelius, um, to stop persecuting Christians. Like, like, just leave us alone, right? Stop persecuting us. And in a really memorable passage, he described the demeanor of the ones they were persecuting. He said this. He said, with us, on the contrary, you will find unlettered people, tradesmen and old women, who thought unable to express in words the advantages of our teaching, but demonstrate by acts the value of their principles. For we do not rehearse speeches, but evidence good deeds. When struck, they do not strike back. When robbed, they do not sue. To those who ask, they give, and they love their neighbors as themselves. What is that? That is conversation that is becoming of the gospel of Christ. What you say matters. How you act matters. Yes, we are forgiven. Yes, we can't earn our relationship with Christ. But Christians, we ought to live in such a way that is becoming of the gospel. We ought to live in such a way that is worthy of the gospel. The best argument for Christianity and the best argument against Christianity is the life of a Christian. Not only are we to be his witnesses, but we are to be part of the evidence of the case. We are either the best witness to your family or you're the worst witness to your family. You either are part of the evidence of the case or we're proving the case the opposite direction. Understand, our life ought to be informed by the gospel day to day, and that ought to impact the way that you live. Shallow, baseline Christianity is what do I have to do? What am I not allowed to do? Okay? That is where my four-year-old is at this moment, right? Five-year-old. I'm a bad parent. Five-year-old. Right? What is it? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? You can do this. You can't do that. Christian, we've got to get beyond that and start asking questions of what should I do, right? What is the best response to this? What, what, what response is most like Christ? What conversation is most becoming of the gospel? Not am I allowed to do that, or if I do that, am I no longer saved? Like, we're asking really shallow questions. We need to ask ourselves, am I living in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? Am I living in such a way that is worth Christ dying for? A gospel focus will produce that consistency. Your life will become to be begin to be an asset to your witness, not a, not a negative evidence of it. So the gospel focus produces consistency. Secondly, what does that consistency produce? Number two, a gospel focus protects unity. Unity. Look at verse number 27 again. He says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Look at this. 
that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, I, I, what I want to hear from you is that you're acting in such a way that is becoming of this gospel, and that you're standing together and you're working together. You're standing in one spirit and you're working with one mind. Now, you need to be careful, okay, because unity does not mean unanimity, okay? Unanimity means everyone thinks the same. Those, unity doesn't mean that, okay? Unity also does not mean uniformity, where everyone looks the same or acts the same. That's never going to happen, okay? If you're a part of a church where everyone believes exactly the same thing 100% of the time, that's, there should be some really serious, like, cult alarms going off in your mind, right? Like, that's when stuff gets creepy, right? There's, a church does not have to be uniform, and it shouldn't be uniform. If a church all believes the exact same thing about every hot topic issue, that's not what Paul is talking about, okay? He's saying stand fast in one mind and one spirit. It's not uniformity. It's not unanimity. That is never going to happen, nor should it happen. What it does mean is harmony. It's harmony. What does that mean? We communicate and we bond over the things that are essential. Augustine said famously, in essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, we treat each other with charity. So he moves beyond the metaphor of a, of a military soldier here. Verse number 27, he says that you stand fast in one spirit. You quit yourselves like men, Paul goes on to say, and standing together on a team. You ought to be unified. The church ought to be a place where there is unity. How does that happen? We focus on the gospel of Christ. We don't focus much here on political affiliation. We don't focus much here on baseball teams, right? Because we're stuck between two. We don't, we don't focus much attention on all of us doing the same things all of the time. Why? Because it's a, it's a lost cause. What do we spend time focusing on? The gospel of Christ. We gather around the gospel, and that produces that spirit of unity. You stand fast together. You stand united together. You go on to say, strive together. So he gives this picture of a soldier standing together. If you study the, the Spartans, they'd have these gargantuan shields, okay? Like bigger shields than one person would need. Like you had it here, and you actually covered your brother and you with your shield. And the guy next to you would cover you and his brother there with their shield. And as long as there was this standing together, this standing fast, as Paul says, in, in one spirit, they were literally impenetrable. All they would do is they'd have rows and rows of dudes with giant shields. They would say, my sword is for my enemy, my shield is for my brother, right? And they'd charge. They would literally be like a gargantuan human battering ram. And they would all stand together, united against the common enemy. A lot of times Christians and churches, unfortunately, are the most divisive, nasty people. And usually we're most divisive and nasty against other Christians. Like we're not even, sometimes we're, we're nicer to the world or nicer to our unsaved friends and family members than we are to a Christian who believes slightly different than we do. And we don't like, I had a friend of mine who uh, kind of did college ministry down in Tennessee where I was at, and they, he was set up these uh, intramural leagues between the sororities and the fraternities. And uh, they had these two, there was two Christian fraternities, okay, on the campus of, of MTSU, which the, the town where I grew up. And the, they played football, everybody played football against each other, but they said when the two Christian fraternities played each other, they had to call extra referees. They had to get like, there's more flags thrown and more nastiness when the two Christians 
because their team had a different Bible version on their t-shirt than our team did. So it's going to get, like, how sad is this? That the most divisive times is usually between fellow followers of Christ. It, it ought not to be that way. There ought to be a spirit of unity. There ought to be a spirit of, of, of harmony amongst believers. We work together. In a church, you know when churches die, when they don't no longer have a common enemy out there of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and seeing people come to know Christ, but they start to see one another as the enemy, and they start nitpicking each other, and they start asking questions that aren't worthy of really any sort of important answer, right? We start looking at each other like, well, you know, I, I wish that they did this, or I wish they did that, or I can't believe, you know, they would listen to that, or I can't believe they would allow this, that this isn't the church that's exactly suited. No, we, we stand fast in one spirit. We might whisper to each other behind the shield, but we're not going to turn our swords on each other. Right? We're going to have that community together. And he goes beyond stand fast. Now he says, with one mind, striving together. So you get this picture of the military soldier standing at their post, and now he paints a picture of these athletes kind of working together, struggling together against a common opponent. He is calling the church to make up their minds individually, but then collectively band together with a common cause and strive in the same direction. The church is supposed to be a team. There's like a holy alliance taking place, Paul is saying. We need to work together. There should be unity amongst the family of Christ. I don't know if you ever played sports, maybe basketball with a guy that uh, thinks he's a little bit better than maybe he is, and he just doesn't want to follow what the coach has to say. He wants to do what he wants to do, and he wants to you know, maybe hot shot in front of everybody else. You've probably had a, someone on your team like that. They would prefer to operate in isolation rather than within the team mindset. They think they're the exception to the rule. They don't want to show up to practice, right? They don't want to pass the ball. They, they complain to the coach when the ball didn't come their way enough, right? That, that, that's the solo player. There's a ton of talent, but they end up being detrimental to the team. In a church, we have to determine not to be that person. There are incredibly gifted people all across this room. But don't focus on our giftings or our abilities. Focus on helping the team to accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish. Right? We're supposed to move forward. We have to get off the sidelines. I have to stop being a diva, right, and worrying about my own points or my own shots, and I've got to accomplish that which is for the best for the team. It's like a team mentality. Don't strive against your brothers and sisters in Christ. Strive together with the team. He says you ought to do this together. One of the greatest moments you'll experience in a church family is accomplishing a common goal together. There's, there's this bigger celebration. When you win something by yourself, you can go home and celebrate by yourself. When you win something together as a team, you band together, united with other people. It's a pretty good party, right? You did this together. We did this united. The gospel focus protects our unity. Say, Andrew, how do we protect our church from getting divisive? We focus on what's important. We focus on the gospel. We focus on the mess of Jesus Christ and all this other peripheral stuff we can argue about in the parking lot later, you know, or we can, you know, have these discussions, but ultimately this is what is most important. This is what is most valuable. So gospel focus, number one, uh, produces consistency of behavior. Secondly, it produces, protects unity in the church. Thirdly, a gospel focus empowers our courage. Look at verse number 28. He says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation. He says, you're going to come against opposition and if you don't stay focused on the gospel, you don't stay focused on what is important, you're going to be terrified, you're going to be scared when the opposition comes. The phrasing there, terrified, gives the concept of a spooked horse, okay? I don't know how many of you guys have liked to ride horses. I don't because I once rode a spooked one, right? 
I can remember I was nine years old. My cousin rode those, what's it called where you like jump the horses? Um, you wear the funny outfits. Steve, yeah, maybe Steve, or equestrian stuff. Yeah, like, I don't know. I just thought the outfits looked funny. But you know, she did this thing where they run around and they jump over the things and have good posture. You know, she did that as a thing. So she said, Andrew, I want you to come over here and ride the horse. I was nine years old. I did not want to ride the horse because I don't like being on things that are bigger than me and I'm not in control of them. I just call me crazy like that. But uh, so I got on the horse and it started walking a little bit and I was doing okay. And then she told it to go. And I did not like that. And I fell off and I have legitimately have not been on a horse in the past 20 years because of that moment happened when I was nine years old. Like I don't, I'm not getting on a horse. Like Sarah wants to go on a romantic horse ride. She can go with someone else. I ain't going. Like I'm not, I'm not getting on that horse, right? I have no interest in being, why? Because the horse was spooked. The horse was in that moment, there, it's, it's, this, it's this idea of having a battle-ready horse, okay? The battle readiness. Paul is saying, don't be a, a battle-shy believer because battles come. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be moments where someone at work doesn't like what you have to say, doesn't like where you go, doesn't like what you don't do. Are you going to be terrified by those moments or are you going to be take hope in them? Look what he says. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but unto you it's of salvation. It's not an evident token of suffering. It's for you it's an evident token of salvation. Why? Because the Bible tells us that if we are in Christ Jesus, we will face suffering. We will face persecution. So Paul says, when you face it, that should be a blessing in your heart of, man, this is an assurance that I know Christ. Because he said this was going to come. If I never faced any opposition, if I never faced any persecution, I'd start wondering to myself, am I really doing anything, right? Why, why would the devil oppose me if I'm heading in the same direction as he is all the time, right? But, but that persecution, that adversarial spirit should be evidence in our heart that we're standing for something. Now, nobody wants to rush into the battle. Don't be some of these Christians that just want to fight everybody, okay? Nobody wants to rush into the battle, but don't run away from it when it comes either. Just have that, that courage, that boldness. One of my favorite games to play at recess when I was in elementary school is Red Rover. I don't know if you guys ever played Red Rover. I liked it because it could get a little bit violent, right? That was just kind of my personality. Uh, if you haven't played it, it's where everybody links arms on one side, and another team links arms on the other side. And they say, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Jim right over, right? And then Jim has to you know, loosen up a little bit. And he sprints, and his job is to break the chain of the other people, right? Um, it's amazing this was allowed to take place in schools, but it's awesome, right? Say my name, right? Say my name, see what happens. Why? Because we're going to try and we're going to try to go over there and break it, right? That's the spirit we have as should have as the church. We're bracing ourselves with one another. We're hanging on. We're standing fast so that we're not broken down. We're not terrified. You know when you when you your line gets broken. When you got that one guy down on the end that's a little bit scared. And then guess what happens? They keep running at that guy, right? Over and over again, they're going to keep running at Will, right? Because Will's kind of scared down there. Will doesn't want to play anymore, right? So they're going to run at him over and over and over and over again. No, we stand together. We're united. We're not fearing the enemy. We're not terrified of the enemy. We're not running at them trying to pick a fight. But at the same time, when they come to us, we're ready to stand our ground. Suffering, Paul says that when that happens, that is a proof of your salvation it's an assurance of your relationship with god there should be a spirit within us as christians that we have this courageous non-conformist spirit now we're not going to be jerks okay we're not gonna be unkind but that that's that's i mean that's not what i believe 
right? That, that's not what God's word says. We have to have that courage to be able to stand. How do we get that? From focusing ourselves on the gospel of Christ. Number four is where I hope to spend the majority of my time, but I'm almost out of time, so I won't spend too much time on it. But number four, a gospel focus allows us to suffer well. A gospel focus allows us to suffer well. Look at verse number 29. He says, for unto you is given that gift, that gift in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see that phrase, in the behalf of Christ? You ever had someone give you a gift on the behalf of someone else? Um, like every present you ever said you got from your dad, but your mom really bought, right? This is from dad, but dad has no idea what's in that box. Um, you know, and the given on the behalf of Christ. Here's a gift given to you from Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. He says this comes with the territory. Suffering comes with the territory. Jesus said the servant isn't greater than the master. They persecuted me, so they're going to persecute you. I went through this, and he's saying part of Christian discipleship comes with suffering. There is always a cross to bear. Now, there's a dangerous understanding from this passage, too. There are people who will, and there's, I think there's a pitfall of understanding that suffering is given from the Lord. Suffering is not self-inflicted, okay? We shouldn't seek suffering as if there's some kind of virtue in pain. Like that same guy that I talked about that went on to become a Navy SEAL, he's the kind of guy who'll say, like, just you know, punch me in the face, right? Because he wants to feel that pain, right? Hit me as hard as you can. I can't, I won't, like, you, you that, that sick mindset. He's not saying as Christians, bring it on, devil. I want suffering. I want family trials. I, I, I want you know, health difficulty. I want to lose my job. Bring it on, right? That's not what he's saying. Suffering isn't as glorying in it. Sometimes there's a, there's a sect of Christianity that thinks inflicting suffering somehow purifies you, that if I make my life miserable by really unwise choices and by really uncharitable actions, that I'm somehow suffering for the name of Christ. So I'm going to put up pickets, and I'm going to picket at soldiers' funerals, and then when they put me in jail or when they ridicule me, just, just suffering on the behalf of Christ. No, that's not suffering on the behalf of Christ, Right? This isn't self-inflicted. This isn't something that uh, we are spiritual because we take some vow of poverty, okay? Um, we are not supposed to crave suffering. No, don't crave it. Also, don't respond to the suffering of others glibly, okay? And say, when someone else is suffering well, you know, you know what Pastor Andrew said, this is really a blessing for you, you know? I'm really happy for you, you know, Jim, that you're going through this. You know, this is a blessing, you know? We don't respond glibly. There's a danger in that. There's a, that only really increases the pain of those who are suffering. Understand God is allowing pain or suffering or persecution into my life. I don't want that. I don't long for that. But understand that God is a good gift giver, okay? He's a good gift giver. So even in that moment, if I don't understand what he's doing, it will result in my better the ultimate good for my life. I always try and compare this to when I took my kids the first time to get a shot, okay? And some people like shots, some people don't like shots. We can argue about that on Facebook later, that's fine. Um, but I took my kids to get a shot. And the look on my son's face as I did not understand all that was going to take place on that day, right? I thought they'd just give him a shot, whatever. But no, you gotta like, you gotta like pin them to, to the, hold them down, and they give the knife. And then I just saw my son's face look at me like, bro, what are you doing? Like, we're supposed to be on the same team here, right? And not only supposed to be on the same team, 
Like you're not you're you're not only like not helping me, you're helping that evil woman, right? You're how could you betray me in this moment? Sometimes suffering feels like that. Like God is what? Why? It feels like you're actually aiding the enemy. It feels like you're hurting me. So pitfalls we have to avoid. We have to understand suffering is is given from God. It's not self-inflicted. We need to determine not to respond to the suffering of others glibly and like dismissive of it and over-spiritualize it. Uh, avoid the catchphrases of Christianity. You know, well, all things work. Just love and care and be there for someone. Understand that if God is allowing this, this doesn't make him a bad gift giver. Also, don't be quick to call something suffering, okay? Pastor, pray for me. My car just broke down. The engine locked up. Money's tight, and I don't know what to do, but I'm, I'm praying this, this suffering is used in my life. Hey, did you change the oil in your car? What's oil, right? Oh, well, maybe that's not suffering, right? Maybe this is the cause and effect of unwise decisions. There are some things in our life that we characterize as God putting us through a fiery trial that we stuck ourselves into. Uh, pray for me, I lost, I lost this job. You know, well, did you show up on time? No. Did you work hard? Not really. Uh, but, you know, God's put me through something here. Well, maybe, maybe you put yourself there, right? Be, be, don't be slow to just blame something on the Lord and say, well, you know, Pastor Andrew said, Philippians 1.29, this is a gift from the Lord. This is a gift from God that I would, that I would suffer. I don't understand. You know, Pastor, my relationship with my spouse is really tough at the moment. I don't, I don't know why God allowed this trial into my life right now, but I know there's reward in heaven for enduring the suffering of this man or this woman, and I'm just going to keep trusting him. And, uh, no, some of these things we, we caused, right? Some of these things are fruit of our own behavior. We don't get to blame God for our sin. Sometimes we even do this with our health, and this gets a little touchy, so I'll hit it and go, okay? Um, odds are that if you neglect your health for decades and decades and decades, something is eventually going to happen that you don't like, and we don't always get to blame it on the Lord, right? Sometimes it's, I mean, God could have magically transformed all those cheeseburgers for the past 60 years. He could have turned them into a salad, and... He could have done this for me, and he didn't know. Some of these things are results of our actions, right? Some of these things are results of our behavior. It's probably not to play the blame game with God all the time and blame all of the repercussions for our actions on suffering for his namesake, because that's not what that is, okay? But there are times when you did nothing of the sort. This isn't a repercussion for your actions, but God sends something across your path that is, it is a trial, and it is suffering. One of my favorite authors, William Barclay, talked about the way you can learn in those moments. He said, I walked a while, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted the whole way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. We learn a lot through suffering. We learn a lot through pain. So what I want to give you is, to close, eight things. <laughs> uh, I'll go fast. I'll go fast. Eight things. Uh, Maybe we should do this next week. No, we'll do it. We're doing it. We're good, right? We're all good. Yeah, coronavirus is out there. We're, we're safe in here. Um, so eight things, really quick, okay? Eight helps for embracing the opportunity of suffering, okay? Embracing the opportunity of suffering. This is really gets really applicable to us, okay? Some of you have to put up with really hostile people at work that you don't deserve how they're treating you. Um, some of you are rejected by family, and they see you as a nut job for what you believe, and they want nothing to do with you. Some of you have been given a physical trial. Now, how can we rejoice in those things? I want to give you eight, eight things, okay? 
Number one, how can I rejoice? I rejoice, first of all, because it brings me closer to Christ. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. When the world mocks me or hates me or persecutes me, it helps me to understand, in a sense, what Christ went through. Could you imagine the kind of rejection he would feel from his own creation, from the people that he loved and was dying for while they're putting him to death? This suffering, this thing that I have not deserved, that I did not do anything to deserve, it will bring me closer to Christ. You've been betrayed, Christ was betrayed. You go through physical pain, I mean, Christ went through it. It brings me closer to him. Number two, it brings us the assurance of our salvation. That's what we saw in Philippians 1.28. This is a token of our relationship with Christ. This is an evident token to you of salvation. When they attack you, it shows whose side you're on, okay? Um, if unbelievers and if people who want nothing to do with God always agree with you, that might be an evidence that, you know, maybe I'm not, it's not clear which side that I'm on, you know, so it's an evident token for us of our salvation. So number one, it brings me near to Christ. Number two, it brings me the assurance of my salvation. Number three, it brings a future reward. This is all throughout Scripture, Romans 8, 18, 2 Timothy 2, 12, Matthew 5, 11, 12. Jesus says that if you suffer on this earth for his cause, great is your reward in heaven. There'll be a reward for you there. Paul says our light affliction brings about an eternal exceeding weight of glory. There's a payoff for this. Now, it probably doesn't result in you having a six-bedroom mansion versus a five-bedroom mansion. Sometimes we can approach things with such a temporal carnal mindset. Well, well I hope the reward's pretty sweet. Like, I, I hope I have a lot of blessings. And I, no, no, this is, we're, we're not gonna be up there comparing. Like, oh man, I went through this suffering. God, you said there'd be a payoff. So I'm counting them up and I've only got six payoffs and I went through eight times of suffering. So I'm missing two. No, they're, it's much more, <laughs> Okay, um, less carnal than sometimes we approach it as. But number four, number four, it results in the faith of other people. Look at uh, chapter one, verse 12, Paul's testimony. But I would not, I would, I want you to understand, brethren, the things which happen unto me have fallen out under the furtherance of the gospel. The things that are occurring to me, the suffering that I have experienced, they will result in the faith of other people. Others will see how I suffer and they'll have their lives affected by it, their faith affected by it. Number five, Number five, it serves as an example to others who can follow us. Same thing Paul said in Philippians 1.30, last verse. He says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and out here to be in me. Basically saying, you've seen I've gone through this stuff. You've seen me go through this persecution and now you're experiencing it. Try and react in a similar way. Try and have the same faith in those ways. Christians should never feel alone in suffering because a Christian is never alone in suffering. We're never alone in this. Jesus suffered. The prophets suffered. The apostles all suffered. Christians have always suffered. Understand you're never alone in it. Number six. Number six says it, it, it perfects you for your usefulness. I love Romans chapter five, um, where it talks about our weaknesses that are actually bring about our maturation. Paul says we should glory in our tribulations because that's what is what results in spiritual maturity. That's what results in our growth. So I don't know why I don't like this. I'm not enjoying this but I know the end results of this will make my spiritual maturity, my spiritual development. Number seven, it weeds out superficial believers. You see this in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Um, suffering at times reveals who's got a real relationship with Christ and who's 
has been superficial or whose has been on the outside. We talked about this last Sunday evening and from the book of James. There are uh, those of us who know the plan of salvation that have never known the man of salvation. There are those of us who know the Roman's robe but have never encountered Christ. Um, the, we, for 10 minutes last night, we talked about the demons and what they had to say about Christ. And it's a pretty solid theology, but they have never repented and bowed their knee before him, right? It reveals who is real in their relationship with Christ versus who's superficial. And lastly, number eight, and I'll be done. It glorifies the Lord. It glorifies the Lord. Philippians 1, look at verse number 29. For unto you it is given on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer, look at this, for his sake. For his sake. You ever had someone say, just do it, just do it for sake of me. Like, just do it for my sake. Like, just, just help me out in this. Like, just do this for me. And you say, well, that sounds like awful selfish for Jesus to ask us to suffer for his sake. Just think for a second, right? For one second, what all Christ has done for your sake, right? His body was broken for you, Paul says. His blood was shed for you. He laid on his life for the sake, for the good of the sheep. Christ died for the sake of the ungodly. Spurgeon said, the suffering that you have now is just the black velvet upon which the diamond of God's glory is going to be revealed. How important is it that we focus on Christ? Oh, it's, it's real important. How is it important is that we focus our attention on the gospel of Christ? Why, why do we call ourselves a gospel-centered church? Because this, this is the fruit of that. You focus on the gospel of Christ, your behavior will be consistent. You focus on the gospel of Christ, your unity with other Christians will be developed. You, you focus on the gospel of Christ, you'll be courageous to stand against the evil. And you focus on the gospel of Christ, and when suffering comes, you realize that I can do this in such a way that is going to bring praise and glory to God, and other people are going to see it and learn from it, and I'm going to become more like him, and you can rejoice even in that. That you and your suffering is a means to an end, and the end is the glory of God and his namesake. His namesake. You know Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me, the rod and the staff they come from me, Right? Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. He goes on to say, ultimately, that all of this is for his own glory. He says, for thy name's sake. We've got to become okay with the fact that this might not always end in a life that is more comfortable for us. This might all end in a life that is very uncomfortable for us. But the glory of Christ is established. And the glory of Christ is displayed. Once you focus on the gospel of Christ and you say, God, you did all that for my sake, I will suffer for you willingly. Now, I'm not going to go looking for it, and I'm not going to blame you for the results of my actions, but when you bring legitimate suffering across my path, I will go through those things for your sake, for your glory, because of all of you have done for mine. Let's have a word of prayer, and I apologize for going long. Heavenly Father, we love you.